Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that digs up all sorts of information, good and bad, about the world of motoring and transport. I'm David Brown. And in this program we have some new stories including a new Kia Sportage, more power for some Mazda models, Hyundai's all-electric Ionic 5 becomes an autonomous taxi and Nissan will add a new type of hybrid to the Australian market. In our feature interview, we ask what sort of background would be helpful to become an executive at a major road and transport research organisation in Australia. Jeff Doyle was once a professional footballer, but he takes on a role at the ARRB because he then went on to huge managerial success. We talk about how football and other experiences help develop a focused team work environment. And in Quirky News, we investigate how a holy place is being plagued with great arguments about a little train. There's more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on Spotify or iTunes. In the descriptions, we even list the times each item appears so you can go straight to it. Of course, there's always our Facebook page, Overdrive City Driven Media. Time to get this program on the road. Let's have the news. Kia's Sportage competes in the hotly contested medium SUV segment, dominated by the Toyota RAV4 and the Mazda CX-5. It's their number one selling vehicle globally, but it's only third in Kia's Australian sales and seventh in its segment. But they will release a new model in October. Its exterior looks continue Kia's solid progression from quite bland vehicles to distinctive styling that in some cases is class-leading. The new Sportage will have boomerang-shaped LED daytime running lights to make the front look more purposeful, and the roof line slopes back gently to give a sports wagon look first seen in the Range Rover Evoque. Its external dimensions have grown, giving more passenger room for the second row and greater luggage capacity while retaining a full-size spare wheel. All the variants get a substantial extra number of safety and comfort features. Prices will be announced at the October launch. Mazda's CX-30 is currently third in the small SUV category, but sales have increased significantly this year. The Mazda 3 is fourth in its small passenger segment behind the Corolla, Hyundai i30 and the Kia Cerato. Both models are getting updated powertrain options, first used in Mazda's quirky MX-30. The system combines their Skyactiv-G engine technology with the M-Hybrid system, which is only mild hybrid, but nonetheless they say it improves fuel efficiency, provides a smoother transition from idling stops, and a more refined driving feel. The number of improvements depends very much on the model. The base G20 Pure's only improvements are a leather steering wheel and gear shifter. The next model up does see more additional features such as hybrid power and electric seats. We only wish that Mazda would name their vehicle variants and their technology in simpler terms, preferably with words from a dictionary. Nissan's ePower hybrid technology has been confirmed for Australia with a launch in 2022. Existing hybrid systems typically power the vehicle with a petrol engine, with an electric motor helping to add some power, particularly in accelerations. 
With many plug-in hybrids, the electric engine plays a bigger role, but the internal combustion engine still has a component in directly powering the wheels in certain situations. Nissan's e-power is more like a diesel-electric locomotive. The internal combustion engine's role is only to charge the batteries. One of the great advantages of this is that the internal combustion engine can be tuned for efficiency within a smaller rev range within a smaller rev range as it does not have to cope with the large variations in the speed of the vehicle. Motional, a developer of driveless technology, and the Hyundai Motor Group have unveiled a joint effort, the Ionic 5 Robotaxi, merging both electrification and autonomy. It also represents how these technologies will be seen in specific applications as a way to general public acceptance. The vehicle operates at level 4, the second highest level of autonomy. This means that the car can perform all the driving tasks, but only in predefined boundaries. These location-restricted trips are in areas that are deemed suitable and typically have a detailed graphical description of all the road conditions. The robotaxi has more than 30 sensors, a combination of cameras, radars and LiDAR, that provide 360-degree perception, high-resolution images and ultra-long range detection of objects. Motional have already tested a robotaxi service covering left-hand and right-hand drive situations, harsh sun and heavy rain, highways and city streets, and controlled and uncontrolled intersections. And that has been the news. It was T.S. Eliot that says, where is the wisdom that we have lost in knowledge and where is the knowledge we've lost in information? The collection of data is very much at that bottom end. Now, it's wonderful to see that ARRB has now set up and employed an executive manager for measurement. And that's Jeff Doyle, who joins us on the line now. Jeff, lovely to talk to you. Thanks for your time. Terrific, David. Happy, happy to be here, and thanks for taking the time as well. Yes, thank you. The word measurement, I think, is rather important. It's not data, and it's not information. You could have been the manager or executive manager of data, yet is there more significance in the word measurement? Probably from my perspective, David, and it's still early doors, but if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. You know, so um, I think... When I look at what we're trying to do here in ARB in the infrastructure measurement division, it's making sure that we're providing the right data. The shame on us if we take it for granted on what we're providing. You know, we need to be very, very focused on that. The um, IAM, IAM is an entree for the rest of the ARB divisions. If we can earn the right and present the data in the appropriate manner, it then makes it safer and more sustainable and creates value for our clients. And that allows all the other Arab divisions to get involved. So, yeah, it's a big job and really looking forward to it. Is this a position that would not have existed five years ago? Have we progressed in our appreciation, need for, understanding of good data measurement rather than just numbers yeah i think you're probably best to ask michael that because obviously it's a new division but but i think with bringing me on and separating the um, division and having the focus 
that Michael and the, and the executive app have given it, I, I think, speaks for itself, really. Mm. It's a very, very important part of the overall group. What's your background? Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting question. Um, I thought we might just start there because uh, I've got a bit of a, a bit of an interesting background. So let me just um, fill in some dots here. I was a failed professional footballer for quite a number of years. I was a I was a rubbish player. I, I scratched the living at it. Here's how good I was, David. I played for a club called Coventry City in the first division in England many, many moons ago. Played there for five years. Never won a thing. Never won a thing at all. The year I left, they won the FA Cup. That's how good of a player I was. I was pretty rubbish. <laughs> so I ended up, I didn't make it in England and ended up coming to Australia. Uh, and I was playing up in Sydney in the equivalent of what the A-League is now, which is which was the old NSL, the National Soccer League. And uh, one of the clubs, big uh, Italian club I was playing for, it was an ethnic-based game then. And uh, the club went belly up. And I was about 26, maybe 27 and I thought, I better get a real job, you know. So I got a job selling, I kid you not, pens and pencils, pens and pencils, copy paper in a little stationery company uh, in Granville, just outside of Parramatta in Sydney. Well, long story short, and there is a bit of a story to this, but 12, 13 years later, we were a 1.3 billion publicly listed share market darling and I was one of the two EGMs you know in charge of the biggest division within the uh, company so had a fantastic time there you know just massive amounts of learning lots of growth and um, yeah really enjoyed that 12 to 13 year uh, period it was my education really in running a business got to about I don't know 39 40 I'd stopped learning and I'd stopped laughing and I thought I'd better do something else. So I became the chief operating officer for a company called ADECO, which is a large, the world's largest recruitment company. So I ran the, I ran the Australian business uh, for 18 months. We got a bit of growth happening. I had a fantastic team there. Then 18 months later, I became the CEO of the ADECO group across Australia and New Zealand. Did that role for five years. Had a fantastic time doing that. We were putting about 10,000 people out to work every week. Seven years in, again, I, I, I get to a point every seven years, it seems like, and I go, okay, well, whatever little bag of tricks you've got, it, it's, it seems like you've used them all up and time to move on. So, again, stop learning, stop laughing, and moved on then, took on a couple of different board roles. And at every juncture or every inflection point, I wanted to see if I could do something different and the learnings that I had taken from each of the roles, maybe put it in somewhere else. So I got a non-executive board directorship with a company called Altus Traffic. Altus Traffic uh, were, were at the time one of the largest traffic management companies in Australia. And then the owner slash chairman asked me six months in to take on the CEO role. And uh, I did that. And we um, I did that for just shy of seven years so we had, again, lots of growth in that space. That business became the number one traffic management provider in Australia. We took it from about, I think, 70 million up to, I think the guys will do, guys and girls will do about 140, 150 million now this year. So again, lots of growth, had a fantastic time, lots of learning. So I suppose I've done different things. So a very long-winded answer to your question, David, I know, but to get back to your question, if I look at the infrastructure measurement division within ARB, it's a services-based business. You've got 
massive amounts of client interaction. You've got a, a kit of vehicles and you've got people to put in the kit. So when I look at what I did with Altus, we did thousands of plans and permits every year, 750 pieces of kit. We had to move 1,600 people into a temporary work zone each and every day, seven days a week, morning, noon and night all over Australia. So I think some of the learnings I took in Altus may assist me with this role. Being a footballer is often seen as being whether you're good or bad, but did you see, start to see there how the role of a teamwork became important? And when you sold pencils, I presume you didn't personally sell 1.3 billion pencils. You must have seen the process. I was good, David, but I was that good. <laughs> <laughs> is that the development of your career, that you begin to see how we can bring people together as a team to hit a common goal, even if that common goal is selling pencils or playing football, which perhaps you didn't get to be involved in as much as a manager. Is that what you see out of your learning experience? Absolutely. I think you've hit the nail on the head. If there's anything I can do, and I come into this role not with a lot of technical knowledge, that was one of the things that that appealed to me about the role because I haven't been in a technical environment before. Although we're in a services-based business, the information division, information measurement division within our I see is a services-based division, but with a technical aspect, but it's still it's still about people. And if I go back to my football days, although I don't have, uh, I left school at 15, the learnings I took from a professional sporting environment for nay six, seven years, you know, I, I didn't understand or I didn't know what I knew when I get into the corporate world that the discipline and the some of the things that you need to do to get to any decent level in professional sports, they're very, very easy to take down into a team corporate environment. So, yeah, the whole hearts and minds thing, you know, I was talking about that long before that became popular, you know. So it's, uh, yes, to answer your question, it's helped me enormously. See, football is often the replays are all about the goal that's finally scored, but the good management is looking at what built up to that. It's not just the one-off spectacular. A colleague of mine uh, from Oz Traffic, John Reid, has sponsored the women's AFL team, the one Brisbane Lions, they won their competition. But that organisation measures a whole range of things, not just the crowd at the top game or the number of points that were scored. Is it the understanding and the measurement of the build-up that becomes critical? Absolutely. I mean, I think it was Pele that said, don't go to where the ball, don't go to where the ball is, go to where the ball is going to be. Ah. So if I look at what we're looking to do here at ARB, um, and I talked about what we need to do, making sure that we provide the right data to our clients. But having said that, as you would well know, David, you know, and I'm only four or five weeks in, but there's, there seems to be there's a tsunami of different offerings out there in the data collection space. I mean, there's so much going on, which I find very exciting. But we at Arab, if you look at there's AI, machine learning, there's crowdsourcing, there's drones, there's sensor fusion. And we are going to get into all of those spaces because we have to. So that's a little bit about not where the ball is now, but where the ball is going to be, I see. So, yeah, 
that's very, very important to be us to be, for, from our standpoint, to be as digital as we possibly can be. Because, as I said, there's just a tsunami of different things happening. And again, it goes back to the football a little bit. I love the football analogy. Quite often, opinion is developed based on one factor. You might have missed a glorious kick and or scored a home goal, and it lives with you for the rest of your life. <laughs> I scored plenty of that. Though. <laughs> I wasn't trying to raise that as an issue. <laughs> My research didn't go that far. But the point is that we have opinion out there, often based on one fact, well, one bit of data. But is the issue of data not only its breadth, you know, that with big data we've got a million records, but its depth? What is the the various aspects that are a part of that data? You've absolutely, absolutely hit the nail on the head, and that's what I was trying to articulate before. Uh, I'll go back to if... The infrastructure measurement division can get it right, can qualify with the client what they need the data for and package it in the appropriate way, as opposed to, yeah, we'll just give them the data and send it back and put it in a spreadsheet. And it's not looked at again for four years. I think my, my focus and their focus needs to be on getting the right data and package it in the right way that over time, we can add some, and the other divisions would add, in which I go back to, that's why we're somewhat of an entree, can then look to create some real value, be it from a safety and sustainability standpoint. I think that's that's why we're doing what we're doing. I'm looking to do what we're going to do, David. Let me finish with that. There's been a lot of work. Uh, Grattan has come out and they've supported what I think many of us have been saying for a long time. There's a need within government to have skill and independent advice. Do you think that this is a great way of being able to give thoughtful, scientific advice that can empower the need for professionals within organisations, be it government or even private? Yeah, you're saying it better than me, David. I'm just going to concur with you, mate. <laughs> I couldn't agree with you more. I couldn't agree with you more. And I go back to what I said initially. If you can't measure it, you can't manage it. Jeff, I really love the fact that they've employed you. I love your stories. Um, I'll know not to have a, a game of soccer with you in the background. <laughs> but I appreciate your time and I wish you all the very best in what I think is a very valid, valuable, uh, even essential service. Thanks for your time. Thank you very much indeed, David. And lovely to chat to you. And uh, that was Jeff Doyle, who is taken on the role of the Executive Director of Measurement in the AWRB. A lovely concept and a very essential one at that as well. This is Overdrive across Australia. Kia updated their Serato GT earlier this year with some style highlights, a new badge and most importantly, revised suspension tuning. This means that the GT is now smoother for everyday driving, it still allows spirited driving, especially in sports mode. The GT keeps the 1.6-litre turbo petrol engine, 7-speed DCT gearbox, with enough power and torque for some relatively impressive acceleration for a sporty, rather than outright, sports performance. It's not in the Stinger class, but neither is the price. It provides excellent driver engagement. The hatch design brings a brilliant blend of comfort and practicality, along with plenty of boot space. Fold the rear seats and it's almost cavernous back there. 
Like all keys, the GT is packed with standard features as well as a high-quality JBL audio system that adds to the high-end feel along with leather interior and red highlight stitching and GT logos. The Serato GT allows simple and intuitive phone connectivity and infotainment system navigation. Priced from a bit over $35,000, it's actually good value, along with the Kia 7-year owner benefit package. I'm Rob Fraser. You're listening to Overdrive. Well, we know our good friend Brian Smith, a man of many deep feelings and done his pilgrimage walks everywhere. Who better than to give us a story about a very sacred site on the east coast of England. G'day, Brian. We're talking here about uh, Lindisfarne, uh, the Holy Island, which is a a, a tidal island in, in England. It's uh, you know, got a historic abbey, Ill, you know, illuminated, magi- uh, illuminated uh, manuscripts and the like. And uh, they, it's a very big um, tourist destination and it's been hit a little bit by COVID and in particular, the local double bus, which is run by a company called Woody's Taxis, um, has had to close down because of concerns over COVID having people in, in close proximity. So the owner of Woody's Taxis, uh, Steve Wood, has proposed uh, replacing it with uh, a land train. He's calling it Larry the Land Train. Now, Land Train, David, is, is one of those sort of uh, rubber-tired miniature railway things that you see at uh, you know, Darling Harbour and places like that where, where you sit in little carriages and a little sort of uh, replica steam engine pose you around, you know, and there might be a, a, a person sitting on the back taking, your, uh, <laughs> taking your, your, your money and giving you a ticket. Well, the people, the good people of this farm um, are not in favour of the uh, Larry the Land Train being replaced, uh, replacing the, the shuttle bus for tourist trips around the island, they they feel that it's uh, it's not really um, uh, in line with their their vision of the place. They say um, it's not Disneyland. We're not a theme park," said Nicola Douglas, uh, a lifelong Lindisfarne resident. Uh, but uh, you know, they're concerned that, as usual with these things, David, it might cause traffic congestion having the the land train around there, it would, would play havoc with the traffic as it turtles along at about 20 kilometres per hour. And uh, for his, uh, his sake, uh, the owner of Larry's, uh, Larry the Land Train is proposing, look, it's open air, it's, uh, it's safe, uh, you know, a conductor on the back, people will love it. So, David, do you think, um, you know, uh, having a bright green and yellow um, toy train running around the town of Lindisfarne would uh, detract from it? Uh, gravitas from its holy image of course as you would know brian it was 635 a.d oh, sorry some would say ce now but uh, saint aidan came from iona and uh, chose to found his monastery on the island of Lindisfarne, and there they claim the christian message flourished throughout the world so uh, clearly it must have been england's equivalent of the vatican indeed it's the holiest site in, in anglo-saxon england but does the train then become a graven image, <laughs> like that satanic Thomas the Tank Engine? Of course, is voiced by Ringo Starr, who represents pop music, and we know what pop music leads to. Dancing. <laughs> it doesn't have a face on the front, does it, Brian? 
No, David, it's, it's, it's faceless, and maybe if they, uh, I don't know, if they put a crucifix on the front or did something like that. St Paul, don't you think? Yeah, journeys through, making the journey and that, and each of the carriages could be named after one of the apostles. Fantastic idea. And I think, of course, that um, I think there are some biblical connections with brains, oh. aren't there? I think Isaiah 6.61 uh, and talks about the year that King Isaiah died and uh, his, his brain filled the temple. Yes, of course. Your reference there to Isaiah 6.1 uh, suggests <laughs> that, that, that it's not quite as familiar. It's given me away, hasn't it? It's given me away that <laughs> it's been a long time. Go now and sin no more, David. There are people who don't believe in juries because they're not mentioned in the Bible. So maybe, to, to my understanding, Jesus never rode on a train. They're exercising their right to stand up and scream and shout so that they can drive their car or bus to learn about Christian principles of peace, love and tolerance. Yes. They don't like change, David. I think uh, the challenge here is they still need elderly people and, and others to move around, tourists to move around the island and... Uh, uh, they can't do it in the shuttle bus, so here's a lovely idea. I think maybe they could import a couple of uh, those open-air buses from... Oh, London. ...ridden on those. They're fantastic. You know, roll the, the windows up because they're made of canvas and stick yourself out. Maybe that would, would be acceptable if it was not so brightly coloured, but it seems a, certainly a, a storm in a teacup. <laughs> Is this just on the island? Because to get to the island, it's tidal, and so it's blocked... Twice a day. So I don't know, David. I, I don't know whether whether you drive across the causeway on the train or it's only at the once you get there. I suspect it it, it has to go across the causeway. Yeah. Uh, and then drive around. It's quite steep. I think that uh, is why uh, a shuttle bus is needed. I think there are, there are concerns. There's a lot of tourist activity there, and and stalls on the on the street, and they're concerned that if people ride this instead of walking they they wouldn't buy things at the store i guess they'd be buying the sort of uh, the the genuine nail from the cross and <laughs> the the finger bone of st anthony that kind of stuff there's pilgrim's coffee i think that's cashing in on the image in fact they have a number of products one's called daily bread that's six pounds 30 pence one's called holy grail blend that's seven pounds 30 <laughs> and one's the Ethiopian Genji Chala, which I don't understand the symbols for. The, the Holy Grail blend has a caricature drawing of a balding old guy, one assumes to be the Almighty, drinking out of a yellow cup of coffee, <laughs> while something from under the cloud, he's sitting on a cloud, underneath it rains down this sort of black liquid. So I presume it's meant to be that... It is indeed the uh, relic or the sacred nature of it is of Pilgrim's Coffee. So it's crash commercialism just in opposition to more crass commercialism. <laughs> Sounds a very modern religious outcome. It's tidal to get across to the thing. But of course, if you really were most devout, you could just walk any time. <laughs> All right, Brian, we've, we've probably offended a number of people. Thank you, David. There goes the audience. <laughs> that is Brian Smith, transport expert, but also one that looks at the uh, broader implications that invoke not just sensible engineering, 
but a certain a devout belief in the mystical. You're listening to Overdrive. Since it was first released in 1989, Mazda MX-5 has brought something special to the sports car segment. The first models were simply so well balanced, and while it has grown over the years, that ruthless sports car concept is carried through in the latest GTRS Roadster, which we drove. Let me say right up front that the MX-5 is just not built for a bare-sized individual like me, which has always been a disappointment. The latest version, powered by a 135 kW 2-litre four-cylinder engine with a six-speed manual transmission, is, however, an enthusiast's dream. It retains everyday functionality and comfort. It also features a BBS forged alloy wheel design with Brembo front brake package, 205-45-17 Bridgestone Potenza tyres, Bilstein gas dampers, and a solid alloy strut tower brace for improved rigidity and steering response. Alongside the more focused dynamics and upgraded suspension, there is advanced connectivity and a fresh exterior and interior finishes. Priced from around $47,000 plus usual costs, it is well within the range of the everyday buyer. I'm Rob Fraser. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Jeff Doyle, Brian Smith, Rob Fraser and Paul Just for the help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, there's our website, drivenmedia.com.au, or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Or there's our Facebook site, Overdrive City Driven Media. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.